0: Welcome to the Caris Molecular Minute podcast. I am your host Dr. Shadi Nabhan, I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance at Caris Life Sciences. The Precision Oncology Alliance as you all know is the large collaborative research network that we have here at Caris that combines many academic institutions, healthcare systems, investigators all collaborating on precision medicine, precision oncology data science to advance the way we take care of patients. Today, I am hosting Dr. Salma Jabour to simplify radiation therapy for us. We want to make sure that radiation therapy is easily understood for everybody. There are so many modalities out there to how we deliver radiation therapy to patients diagnosed with cancer. But the question is, how do they differ? When do we apply them? So call this like a crash course in radiation therapy. Dr. Salma Jabour is a Vice Chair of Clinical Research and Faculty Development. She's the Clinical Chief of Radiation Oncology at Rutgers Cancer Institute, and she is a Professor of Medicine. She is a member of the ASTRO, the American Society for Radiation Oncology, the American College of Radiology, ACR, and the Radiation Therapy Oncology Group, RTOG. Uh, she really does a lot of uh, 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 treatments for patients with uh, GI and thoracic cancers and has won uh, uh, many awards uh, that are going to be very difficult to list only uh, as an introduction. So I've asked Dr. jabour to simplify radiotherapy for us and radiation therapy techniques and how we deliver radiation therapy, and she did not disappoint This is a podcast episode that you are going to go back to every so often to refresh your memory about what is happening in terms of how we deliver radiotherapy. Without further ado, Dr. Salma Jabour on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Salma, welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Let's do a quick intro for folks who don't know you.
1: Thank you, Shadi, for having me on uh, your show today. I'm super excited to be speaking with you. My name is Salma Jabour. I am a radiation oncologist at the Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey. I am professor and vice chair there, and I focus on... I'm professor and vice chair of clinical research and faculty development, and I focus on GI and lung cancers.
0: What we want to do today is, you know, we want to have like this radiation therapy in general take the myth out and just make it easy for people to understand who are not radiation oncologists. So think about how you speak to patients, to families, and folks who don't know about radiation therapy. So when when, when you talk to a patient about radiation therapy, that they are going to get radiation therapy. I'm your patient, I'm in the clinic, and you want to give me radiation therapy. How do you explain what you are going to do in a way that I can understand it?
1: we always tell patients that radiation therapy is a set of high energy x-ray beams this is kind of the really bottom line uh you know it's it's uh, logarithmi- logarithmically stronger than ct scans and it works similarly to chemotherapy and probably simulates immunotherapy uh we are chasing dna damage similar to many chemotherapy agents but in contrast to chemotherapy it's localized. we have the ability to focus the radiation uh, very directly on these on tumors, lymph nodes, metastases, and we can um, we can shrink them using these these fabulous beams. We um, also have an immune effect similar to immunotherapy. Uh, many in our field have hypothesized and it's probably quite true that as we treat these tumors and small pieces of the tumor are cleared from the area that we sort of generate an immun immune effects similar to vaccination. And uh, for all intents and purposes, we think that that's another mechanism that the radiation can be quite effective.
0: So when you say like high beam x-rays, for example, as you explain this to a patient, are you saying like this is the sun, the sun is delivering x-rays and we're diverting these x-rays into the pelvis, for example, or the head and neck, or is that what it is?
1: Yes, exactly. So I sometimes use the analogy of a spotlight on a stage. Uh, when you go to see a show, um, oftentimes the spotlight on the actors is actually made up of a lot of little spotlights. And where they all converge is where the biggest spotlight is, where that large spotlight on the actor uh, who's singing is. And that's, that's what we're doing. We're taking all these little beams and focusing them to um, converge or concentrate on the tumor. And that's where the maximum effect takes place.
0: When we talk about the, uh, the the delivery of thing, I mean do you get a it may affect normal tissue people like how do you make sure it just hits the cancer only?
1: Yeah, that's that's what that's the big part of what we do. Um, a lot of what the radiation oncologist is responsible for, just like the medical oncologist and surgical oncologist is this complex decision making. We always have to balance the treatment, effects and positive effects of the treatment on the tumor with potential side effects. Um, so, for example, uh, one common situation we think about, and for example, lung cancer is lung cancers can often be close to the heart. And how do we protect the heart while treating the cancer? And there are a variety of ways to do this. Uh, some by how we actually dose the radiation near the heart. We can kind of uh, reduce the dose when it approaches the heart to not be at the full dose or to really stop the dose uh, near the border of the heart while giving dose to the tumor on the other side. Or we can use different modalities like proton beam, for example. So those are those are some of the ways we think about how to best design the treatment. And it's always a, like a balancing of, um, act for us, uh, just like all, the, all doctors who deal with cancer patients often have to make decisions that they think are the safest and best on behalf of the patient.
0: So what we're going to do is we're going to go through what we hear a lot about in radiation therapy in terms of these advances and all of these things. And we're going to just spend a couple of minutes on each so we can explain each one to folks. We hear a lot about CyberKnife. What is CyberKnife?
1: So I always like to explain this as kind of under the umbrella of what we call stereotactic body radiation therapy or stereotactic radiosurgery. CyberKnife just happens to be a particular device or machine that delivers this treatment, and it's a particular brand name, but it really falls under the umbrella of stereotactic radiation therapy. And stereotactic historically has meant that we are targeting the radiation in a three-dimensional space uh, with a coordinate plane and that coordinate plane really converging on the tumor. You know, that's kind of historic in a way because nowadays everything is planned that way. Uh, But the idea is that it's a highly focused, usually high-dose radiation that's delivered over one to five sessions. And the same amount that you might give in two, three, four, five, six weeks of radiation is consolidated into these one to five sessions. So each session can be quite a bit more potent than um, spreading the radiation out over uh, a more prolonged period. Uh, I sometimes use the analogy of an antibiotic. I don't know if it's totally fair, but sometimes uh, historically people could go into the doctor's office and get an injection of penicillin and it would just be a one-time injection, but it was very strong, right? It would last and kind of do um, treat the infection over a span of days or um, maybe more than just days, one or two weeks. Um, similar to other antibiotics where people take them for five days or 14 days. Um, so sometimes when we think of radiation, we have different ways to dose it that may have the same efficacy. in stereotactic radiosurgery or, or um radiotherapy, stereotactic radiotherapy, we often think of um, really shortening the treatment and giving these higher doses that are quite focal, usually using many beams, um, as I explained in the spotlight analogy earlier.
0: Are there particular tumors that you can give CyberKnife while other tumors you can't, or you can actually apply that method on tumors anywhere they exist in the body?
1: Exactly. Perfect question. So really... We think of it as being more applicable to smaller tumors and what that size cutoff is, is a little bit, you know, is a little bit of a judgment call. But historically, people thought about that as five centimeters or less it would usually be kind of an ideal target for stereotactic uh, radiation therapy. Um, but, you know, do sometimes we think about using it for tumors that are six centimeters or 5.5 centimeters, obviously. Um, That's sort of within reason as well. Using these treatments can be curative in many cases. For example, um, SBRT in the lung is a curative intent modality for patients who are medically inoperable uh, with early stage lung cancer. Uh, so these are really important and valuable therapies that offer really great options for patients who otherwise may not have a surgical option in that case. Um, so th- these are um, these are really miraculous therapies, I think.
0: We hear about Gamma Knife.
1: Yep. So same thing. Gamma Knife is, uh, also. We falls- have two
0: names. You get, why, why, we have two it's names.
1: It's a, it's a slight, it's a, these are all different machines and they bring different things to the table, right? So, um, and no pun intended there, right? So, but CyberKnife um, uses, uses, a what they call a six degree, uh, six degrees of freedom, um, kind of, uh, linear accelerator that rotates around the patient. The Gamma Knife is, and can be used both in the brain and in the body. Uh, the Gamma Knife is exclusively for brain treatments. It was developed um, decades ago by, uh um, by, you know, an innovative, uh, I think, surgeon at the time, uh, Lars Leksel, uh in Sweden. And, and it uses uh, multiple cobalt sources where, again, the spotlight analogy becomes very true. Um, but basically, the patient's put in a neurosurgical-type uh, frame or even a helmet, if you will, and uh, little cobalt sources can be directed to pinpoint uh, very tiny tumors in the brain. But the gamma knife is exclusively for brain tumors.
0: Uh, Salma, uh, we're going to move on to the next uh, thing, but uh, just uh, just came to me. So you said you can do the cyber knife for example, on the Gamma Knife to you know these small tumors. So I'm going to th- let's say you have two. Like, can you do the can you do on more than one lesion the same? Like, can you give cyber knife to three areas in the body, and each one is five centimeters? Or this is only for an isolated cancer, one one spot?
1: No, absolutely. This is, uh, these are the really exciting ongoing topics in our field and some of the topics in oncology in general. Uh, for example, we view those kinds of situations as being oligometastatic disease where the patient may have a few areas that are involved with cancer that are scattered either in the lung or in the lung and the abdomen. And we can definitely give radiation to each of those spots independently and design a plan separately for each of the areas and and target it. So the radiation can be given to multiple areas in the body very safely, or it can even be given to the same area as a repeat irradiation if necessary, often using an SBRT technique if it's appropriate. Um, So it's really exciting that we can use these therapies for multiple tumor types, multiple locations, really with quite excellent safety profiles
0: we hear the term IMRT. What in the world is that?
1: Yeah, so that's that's another group of therapies. These are more traditional therapies, kind of historically emerging from three-dimensional conformal radiation therapy, where the beams were um, brought in sort of from a front and a back angle, if you will, or front and back and sort of two side angles and what we've taken those same kind of ideas of bringing the beams in from uh, standardized or, or individualized um, angles for the patient. And now what we can do is we can shape that beam and modulate it. So we intensify the beam in certain parts and de-intensify it in other parts to protect areas. So for example, uh, in head and neck cancer, we want to get a very high dose of radiation to the primary head and neck cancer. Uh, perhaps it's in the in the um tonsil. Uh, but right behind the tonsil is the spinal cord and the parotid gland. And what we can do is intensify the radiation to the tumor while deintensifying the radiation to the spinal cord to make sure that everything is delivered safely or into the parotid gland to make sure that the patient's mouth doesn't get dry long term. And these are ways that we can creatively use the radiation to make it more and more safe and increasing um, the the effectiveness by giving a full dose while decreasing the toxicity profile.
0: And then we hear the term proton therapy. Now, what in the world is proton therapy?
1: So proton therapy is a totally different therapy. We usually use IMRT and 3D to be synonymous with photon therapy, and they're just different types of energy. But the proton has a very distinct, uh, distinct uh, feature, which is that the radiation can literally be stopped at a distance. So, for example, it's commonly used in, in children and pediatric cancer patients where we worry about growth of certain organs after radiation. And one common picture I can see in my head that I often show to demonstrate this principle is in a patient who requires um, total irradiation of their cranial craniospinal axis, so their whole brain and their spine to treat any microscopic cells. And uh, we don't want to give radiation to uh, the vertebral body unequally because it can result in changes in growth. Um, but we also don't want to treat any of the abdominal organs if we don't need to. So we can literally stop that radiation at the front part of the bone that surrounds the spinal canal um, and prevent the radiation from going to the kidneys, to the stomach, you know, to the chest while giving the sufficient dose uh, to the uh, craniospinal axis to treat the cancer. So it Is a huge advantage for those patients to protect these organs that really do not need to get any radiation. And pediatrics is one common example of where we really prefer to use proton therapy uh, as one of, um, as one of the options for the patient.
0: So, so these are different machines that are different Proton therapy, because the other machines are giving photon therapy.
1: Correct. Yes. So they are in different, often in different parts of a hospital or different centers, um, different, you know, different, different, different um, therapists working on them. Usually the same group of physicians, but yes, they're entirely different machines. The gamma knife is a machine of its own with its own space. Um, the CyberKnife also similarly, our photon machines have their own rooms and the proton machines also uh, require larger amounts of space usually and their own um, their own facilities.
0: You mentioned a little bit about uh, proton therapy, uh, using it in pediatrics and in situations when you have to irradiate the craniospinal access. Yes. but But is that based on... Judgment call that or a consensus that you guys in the radiation oncology field have actually concluded, or has this been indeed compared to photon based therapy in prospective randomized studies to really be convincingly telling people that it does actually have lower toxicity and similar or better outcomes?
1: Yeah, I'd say all of the above, Shadi. Um, that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a pediatric oncology expert, but I, um, but the knowledge that I have is that uh, we have historic data, we have modern data with proton, and we know the toxicity profiles are, um, are improved by magnitudes, whether it's sort of in prospective comparative trials or using enough retrospective data. Uh, we do have data similar to that in, for example, esophageal cancer, where we get a sense that Using proton-based therapy may reduce toxicities. Um, that's that was published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology by a colleague of mine, Dr. Stephen Lin at MD Anderson, and that um, showed that we could truly reduce toxicities for patients using proton beam therapy for esophageal cancer. Um, so, you know, so we do have some data that is prospective and comparative, um, randomized trials, not necessarily phase three, but certainly strong data and other certainly more historic data some in quite large proportions for example even in liver cancer um, knowing that uh, we are really able to spare normal liver especially in the setting of injured livers um, in the setting of hepatocellular carcinoma where there's been some element of liver injury from drinking or hepatitis um, resulting in cirrhosis so we have quite a preponderance of data that um, that gives us, I think, a very strong rationale to uh, to treat these patients um, with these certain therapy, the proton therapy, to reduce effects or improve the um, therapeutic ratio.
0: I think the proton therapy takes a bad draft because uh, it's costly. Why is it more expensive? Oh, is I it, am. Is it like the machine, or is it like I I'm think trying to understand? Like it's. I think I that think... I think uh, that's the main yeah. drop.
1: Yeah, the machine is, um, the machine is more expensive. I'm not sure. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I apologize for not being really a cost expert, but, uh, but certainly the machine is more expensive. Some of the equipment, um, for example, that requires certain, you know, certain devices that could be, um, that I could add cost to the treatment. But yeah, I, I suspect that it's just, it's also more labor intensive in many cases. Um, for me to design a proton plan, I will say it's, It takes me a lot longer to really come up with my ideal proton plan than uh, often they're more complex. They're re-irradiation cases, um, which are also uh, nail biters for me. So, you know, so there there can be a, a variety of reasons that they may be more costly.
0: Okay, let's finish up with what we hear about something called radiopharmaceuticals. What are these?
1: So that's a really exciting arena right now for um for oncology in general because i I think that medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, and certainly even our nuclear medicine colleagues are quite excited about these therapies. These therapies have certainly been around a long time. Uh, we don't think of them that much um because they've been historically used to treat, for example, thyroid cancer with i one thirty one iodine one thirty one therapy um but those have been around for decades. We also have, um, a more older treatment called Yttrium 90, which also has been around, uh, for, for probably 25 to 30 years, um, and also really exciting to treat liver cancers. And that's also, um, certainly been well studied. But we have a newer generation of radiopharmaceuticals that are also injected by IV to treat more systemic disease and, um, those generations of drugs include things like radium-223 for metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, where there's uh, preponderance of bone involvement. And we've found that that treatment can make people patients with those diseases live longer while reducing symptoms, um, so having better quality of life. And now we have newer generations of bone-targeting agents um and tar- agents that target even systemic disease, certainly agents like Lutothera for n- neuroendocrine carcinomas, Pluvicto for, uh, prostate cancers, uh, yet a further improvement over, um, potentially even over radium. So we have a lot of exciting new therapies that are able to treat not only bone disease, but potentially more systemic disease as well. That's uh, non bone, uh, in the prostate cancer arena. So, so really exciting things for patients and, these are definitely making differences in survival rates. So I think that um, we're all really happy to see these advances for our patients.
0: So, so, so but, but you're you're kind of like attaching radiation. Like oh yes. Yeah. So how does have, it work? Like, like I don't know. Like how do you attach radiation to the actual drug? Like what's Take us just a little bit.
1: It's a, yeah, so like, for example, in y ninety um these are very tiny spheres that sort of have yes, radiation attached to them, um they're injected into a catheter and to the liver uh, the radium two two three is honestly a radioactive sort of liquid that we inject i v uh similar to ludothera, you know they're they're provided in sort of a liquid form that we can inject through an i v and um. And really, with good safety safety profiles, et cetera. So it's um, it's a systemic radiotherapy. So sort of the best of both worlds of giving uh, an IV chemotherapy, if you will, but now giving it with radiation.
0: Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. I mean, it, it's really instead of delivering radiation therapy, the way I look at it, from the outside in, you're really kind of delivering radiation to the actual organ. Uh, In itself using, you know, in in the serum, but it's actually having, you have to have like an antibody attaches to the antigen on the actual cancer cell. And once that actually happens, you're delivering the radiation therapy. Well, I can't let you go before talking about brachytherapy. How did I forget about brachytherapy? We haven't, this is a completely different modality, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so you just use the word internal for the radio pharmaceuticals, yeah, which that's is why I basically, talked
0: about therapy. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. So that's the exciting uh that's another exciting way we can get the radiation closer to the patient, right? Without having to come from the outside in. And uh these are these are usually seeds or catheters that allow us to deliver uh, radiation internally to tumors. Often we think of them in pelvic tumors, such as prostate cancer, cervical cancer, endometrial cancer, um, to either treat the tumor in a curative fashion or to um, as an adjunct to surgery. So these are um, also really important therapies that are usually delivered by radiation oncologists that have special expertise in, in these treatments.
0: Well, this was really like a crash course in all of these modalities of radiotherapy. I think uh, what I'm looking forward to in the future, honestly, is opportunities where you can actually tell how, when, when is it appropriate to de-escalate radiation therapy, escalate radiation therapy using genomics and molecular targets. I think that would be really cool that you get the molecular profile of a tumor and say, you know what, for this particular one, I feel comfortable doing X, Y, and Z. You know, that would be wonderful if we get there.
1: And that's what, um, that's what we're hoping to accomplish with all the work that Keris is doing and obviously um, all the work that uh, our community is doing to kind of advance care and, and make this these treatments more and more personalized. Yes, but this was definitely a crash course in radonk 101, as I like <laughs> to say.
0: Well, Dr. Sanla Jabour, thank you so much for visiting with me on the CARES Molecular Minute podcast. Always a pleasure to have you.
1: Thank you. Nice to talk to you, Dr. Napan Shadi. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for joining me on the Keras Molecular Minute Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate the show, let all of your friends and colleagues know about the show, write a brief review, and always let me know how I'm doing and provide feedback. You can do this by emailing me at cnabhan at Thank you to Dr. Jaboor for joining me on today's podcast and until next time, take care.